By the way, we cannot say for another time that we've redone and had issues. Like, we just can't tell anyone anymore. Would it be middle brow if we didn't redo it? (laughs) So unprofessional, truly. It's like Parks and Rec. It's not government work unless you do it twice. I mean, it's like you you just cannot remember that I don't watch Parks and Rec. (laughs) (laughs) I just don't want that to to be true. You don't like Tillamook ice cream. You don't watch Parks and Rec. Okay, so I need you to know I bought bluebell ice cream again (laughs) because i was like let's just make sure it's the best ice cream do you even have it in california yeah i think so is it the rabbit one no it's not no it's not the rabbit one because danny and i the the thing is here so i don't know if it's actually everywhere or not it is so i'll stick to tillamook I mean, go for it. I love their cheese. I eat their cheese. Actually, because I don't eat sugar, I eat Rebel, and it's really good. So anyone who <laughs> is staying away from sugar, get Rebel ice cream. What's Rebel? It tastes just like normal ice cream, except for it's made with monk fruit and some other stuff. So it's no, like, added sugar. And So if you had your choice between Rebel and Tillamook? Well, Tillamook has sugar. <laughs> so well, I know, but you're saying it tastes just like normal ice cream. So I'm just calling your bluff on that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably going to cut this all the way out. So I don't know why I'm going so into detail. We just need to shorten our rants a little yeah. bit so we can still keep them. We're like, anyway, so you need to have the mint flavor. They make their chocolate chips like this. Here's the recipe. Are they Okay, wait, real quick, though. I can't shorten it. Are they... <laughs> chocolate chips like a dome or are they they thin paper chips they're thin chips not paper but like yeah they're like yeah like squares yeah then there's the chip that's just flex and you're like fuck off yeah although give me flex when i expected chips who is it is it hagen someone makes like thick okay hagen makes the best ice cream Their cookie dough is out of this goddamn world. I heard it's technically pronounced Hagendaz. I would believe that because I don't know anything about German. Is it German? Um, I don't know. I just assumed. (laughs) Okay, let me rephrase. I don't know anything about any languages that aren't English and Spanish. Googling Hagendaz, American ice cream brand. (laughs) It's American, of course. Fucking posers. Let me. Danish sounding. Oh. But it bears no resemblance to Danish. <laughs> it was a tribute to Denmark's exemplary treatment of its Jews during the Second World War. How that relates to ice cream, I'm not quite sure. I don't sure. really understand. <laughs> Still very confused. <laughs> but cool. What were we even talking about? So I know it's a weird and crazy time for everyone. I hope everyone is handling quarantine okay and staying safe please take this seriously and i hope everyone's family's okay yes it's super scary and i was telling my parents this morning that i felt uplifted by the fact that i feel like i've seen more good than Mm -hmm. bad like more good behavior in the face of things that are really scary and you know even the bad behavior the hoarding and all of that you just got to remember everybody deals with shit differently and people are scared and um you don't know what people's situation is yeah i think the worst thing that i've seen in people is racism come out quite extremely towards asian americans or just asians 
in general. It's frightening and it's disgusting. I'm very grateful to be in a, you know, a smallish uh, city that is really beautiful and there's a lot of goodness that happens around here. And I think like, by the way, hmm. what are people doing there? Anything? At eight, it's 8.02. At eight o'clock, everyone howls in Denver. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's really cute. Why? How'd that start? I don't know. They just started doing it. I wish I could send you. The other day, a couple of people were posting stories that actually live in Denver. So it was like way more intense. Hmm. But my mom said they heard it the other night too. So people around them must have been doing it. So on this topic, I think it's important that we just take a moment and acknowledge the unfortunate death of the art critic and curator Maurice Berger, who did pass away from COVID-19. I'm going to link, I'm going to have Olive <laughs> link. Um, and then when I do it wrong, she'll be like, excuse me, you did it wrong. And I'll be like, oh, sorry, don't put me in charge of things. Uh, this video <laughs> that he I think someone else made it, but he's being interviewed and it's incredible. So anyone who doesn't know, he's a critic and curator and historian who devoted his career to addressing race relations in contemporary art. He's an incredibly beautiful human being and died for no goddamn reason. Yeah. What the hell? Um, so we'll link that video. Please go watch yes, it. It's really good. And it's not like a whole movie. It's like a short clip. Okay, so my friend Dana Safferstein, damn it, she may have to correct her own name. Safferstein. Um, one of those, she <clears throat> listens to the podcast and she's also in her own right a badass illustrator and she does branding and UX design. She listens to the podcast and she's, <laughs> will text me and uh, tell me how words are pronounced since we clearly struggle with that. And so I decided it would be awesome if she was just like our resident word corrector person. Um, so if we're ever struggling with a word, we're just going to insert her voice saying the word correctly. Uh, so that way we don't have to deal with it, right? We'll always get it right through Dana's help. Also, if you live in Denver, you might have seen her work because she did these cool illustrations for like the bikes that you can rent around town. She also branded North Windcoop. So she's on Instagram. If you'd like to check her out at day nom nom, like you're eating something, D-A-Y-N-O-M-N-O-M. -O -O uh, yeah. So you'll hear her verse, voice throughout our episodes. Um, from now on, hopefully. Thanks, Dana. Welcome to Middlebrow. Uh, for those who don't know, this is a mostly contemporary art podcast hosted by completely average, not below average, we're, we're average, maybe not above average. <laughs> Middle of the pack human beings and so well, we're just artists <laughs> i think what we were trying to do with that was just be like we're just like everyone yeah. even though you don't know about art you can still be with us mm -hmm. and we're just average it's okay um but it, it does kind of sound that way um we really love ourselves though and we really love each other this is so it's mostly about each other yeah i'm sitting here with my best friend olive moya and I'm here with my best friend, Lindsay Schultz. <laughs> and this is why we do this, so we can just hang out. So it's really, no offense, it's not that much about you. It's mostly just about You're us trying to hang out. You're third-wheeling our friendship. Yeah, <laughs> get out of here. Audibly. 
should I say the intro more succinctly? Damn it. How did we start? Okay. Uh, we try really hard to be interesting, especially for people who are smarter than us, like somebody that we are about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> we try to be interesting. It's for artists and for people who want to know about art but might feel intimidated. Trust me, we're right there with you. God. <laughs> As you started, I'm like, I'm gonna be so job. I'm gonna be so on it. She's gonna stop him like, trust me, we're right there with you. And then I'm like, la la la, the Chris Burden <laughs> documentary was so good. <laughs> but like literally anything else I say, you're on top of me like 24-7. You're like, um, that's actually wrong. What are you saying? Um, excuse me, that's not the right way. It pronou- it's pronounced differently. Um, you forgot to mention our names, you forgot to mention everything. <laughs> But when you have a job, you're like, oh, put this in the front in the beginning. Yes. I need you guys all to know that um, if you're listening to this, this is clearly a visual. You need visuals for this podcast. We have those visuals. I spend a lot of time putting the images together, formatting them for Instagram and putting them all in order. So go to the Instagrams and find (laughs) find it is at middle brow podcast and follow us so then you'll know exactly when we put a new episode up since we aren't um regular about this so follow our podcast yeah subscribe follow the podcast rate it review Mm -hmm. it sleep with it share it it. share it on your stories or whatever you can do speak softly to it whisper lick it maybe if you like it (laughs) not after you've had your phone out in public because coronavirus so let's get into it Today's episode is on Felix Gonzalez Torres. I've loved his work for years and years and years. I've seen his work quite a bit in person. I've eaten his candy. I've collected his posters. Um, I was too much of a fatty to save his candies, but I did save his posters. And Did you save the wrappers at least? No, I don't think so. Which is weird because I'm such a like archivist. Archivist. Yeah, it's very strange. Also, were the candies good? They were so good. Surprisingly good. Because when you hear wrapped hard candies, you're like, eh. Grandma candies. Okay, so I reached out to my friend Andres because I know he really loves Felix's work. I wanted to have him record something so you guys could hear from someone who Felix's work has impacted. Deeply impacted. He's an artist, and at least at CalArts, he did mostly installations and sculptural work. And he's currently the curator of public engagement at Craft Contemporary in LA. I love that. He's really cool. Also, he used to host all of our Game of Thrones viewing parties. So I'm going to add in here... um, I had Andres send a voice memo introducing himself and talking about his relationship to Felix's work. Uh, I'm going to insert it here. Um, right here? Right here. This, I'm going to is drop it, happen it right in the timeline now? right here. Right and Five, four, three, he's two, starting in three, one, two, <laughs> one. <laughs> he should host our podcast instead of us. <laughs> because <laughs> um, we can't pronounce words right hello my name is andres fayan estrada i am an artist and a curator currently living in los angeles california i was born in ciudad juarez chihuahua mexico and um i 
first came across uh, Felix's work when I was an undergraduate in one of my art history classes. And to be honest, I don't remember a specific work that I was introduced to, um, although I vaguely do remember his candy piles from that time. But throughout time, his Perfect Lover's piece became so influential in my life that I usually say that that was the piece that I was introduced to first. Um, I even have a tattoo of the line drawing of the two clocks that he had drawn for his lover, Ross, in the 1988 lover's letter. And, well, there was many reasons why Felix became such an influential presence in my life. And I think a big part of it was being able to see someone who I could identify with uh, being a queer immigrant POC, but also being an educator and an artist. But I think one of the things that really drew me into his work as both an artist and an individual was that incredibly elegant but cutting sensibility that he had when turning ordinary gestures or moments or everyday objects into extraordinary things. And how these things spoke so deeply about his and his community's existence. And I think a perfect example is Perfect Lovers, um, which are two ordinary clocks that are hung next to each other, barely touching, and they're perfectly synchronized down to the second, and how the imminent reality that one will eventually fall out of sync can speak to someone or to you or to me about time or chance or loss um, or can even speak more directly about his relationship with Ross and their own mortality as gay men during the AIDS epidemic. And to me, these gestures are able to speak about these specific experiences, but also speak more broadly about human experience in general. Um, in in my home, I, I currently have a collection of his paper stack series that I usually hang on my walls and They've all been collected by me, but have also been given to me by friends. And each one of them kind of has a story of how it came to, to me and who brought it to me. Um, and to me, there's always been this interest in how a work of art can take such different meanings to each individual, depending on who they are or where they're from or who they're with or maybe even what they just ate or if it's raining outside. And for that reason, every time that I look at a work by Felix or my tattoo, I'm reminded of this romantic or realist or nostalgia and how even the most mundane or often unacknowledged gestures in our everyday lives can carry very deep importance and meaning in defining who we are as individuals or as humans. Everybody has those or artists that have really spoken to them. Yeah. And clearly he relates to to Felix in a way where, you know, he's this Latino gay artist. And so he has all these identifiers where he can just like latch onto that and be like, that's me. That's just, everybody wants that to see someone just like them doing something that they want to do and doing it well and with such feeling and intensity. And I just think yeah, of course, his attachment to him is is more profound. And we all have found people like that in our lives that we kind of look up to and and have that extra special connection with. Okay, so 
Have you seen Felix's work in person ever? Not in person, no. Okay. For anyone who doesn't know, if you come across a Felix piece, for the most part, if it's a stack or a corner piece, you're supposed to take it. Don't take the light bulbs. <laughs> Does anybody think that light bulbs are for taking? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is mine now. <laughs> Felix wanted it this way. <laughs> he wanted me to take everything. Wait, but I have a crush on him, though. I know. He's so Look how cute. cute. He is. It's like he's so smoldering cute. look. Mm, Cubans. <laughs> <laughs> so Felix was born in Cuba in 1957, and he was the third of four children. In a weird and sad move... Him and his sister, Gloria, were sent to Madrid to live in an orphanage until settling in Puerto Rico with their uncle. That's not cool. Which is a really weird move to decide to keep two of your children. I mean, first of all, I'm not here to judge. No, we are judging. Also, I feel like the trip to Madrid from Cuba would be kind of like an expensive one. Why are they going all the way to Madrid? Why can't they find an orphanage somewhere closer? I don't know. Okay. So... Okay, so in 1967, at the age of... 19. He graduated from... Colegio San Jorge in Spain. And then began to take art classes at the... University of Puerto Rico. <laughs> at the same time... <laughs> this is fun. <laughs> Let's do the whole thing like this. <laughs> at the same time, he was, quote-unquote, becoming involved with the local art scene. At 19, I wasn't doing shit. Nope. I was drawing and doing form and space <laughs> and teasing my hair a lot. <laughs> at 22, he moved to New York to get his degree in photography at Pratt Institute. That's where Pam goes for her three-month thing in the office. That is where she goes. <laughs> for all those Pam Beasley's out there. They say here it was interesting time to live in New York City because artists were responding to the exhaustion of the minimalist movement. P.S. No one can get exhausted by minimalism. <laughs> well, it's the best movement. <laughs> it could, though. Let's just be honest. No, nope, There's the only best. so many things you can do. Just grids and cubes everywhere. And lines. <laughs> and white. <laughs> only white. White on white. Or black on white. No colors. No color. And if you do use color, only one. Yep. <laughs> uh, okay. Apparently, people were being exhausted by the minimalist movement. They probably it's me like being like, I need more either. than one color. <laughs> uh, with opposing strategies of neo-expressionist painting. So think Basquiat, Philip Guston, <clears throat> mm-hmm. and postmodernism. Warhol, Cindy Sherman, Barbara Kruger, Damien Hirst, Jeff Koons. So during this period, he was part of the Whitney Independent Study Program, twice Damn. twice he was accepted into this program it's crazy for people they to didn't get, get accepted into him? it once huh yeah. they didn't get exhausted of him the first time no probably because he's so amazing because he used more than one color probably man i should give up minimalism <laughs> that's my problem that everyone's face. exhausted by minimalism <laughs> this is why it doesn't work no one wants to see my grids anymore to even get into the whitney program once is crazy i don't think you're taking me seriously it is crazy so for him to get in it twice is unreal also back to back 1980 and 1983 they're like we miss you come back to us it's unacceptable 
So wait, was he even graduated? No. That same year in 1983, he received his BFA. So it's oh like, my God. yeah, no big deal. I'm going to get my BFA, but I'm going to also be in the Whitney program. <laughs> it's like Cole getting an intern before he's even graduated. <laughs> <laughs> in... 1987, he got his MFA from the International Center for Photography, but it was the Whitney program that he credited with introducing him to the theoretical framework that shaped his early artistic practice. Makes a lot of sense. So I looked up his CV on his website, Uh and I asked Olive to guess how many pages it was. I guessed 27 and that was a big guess. That I was guessing that because I was like, she's making me guess because it's a lot. Yeah, I don't so say I guess like, how long the CV is, is. And it's like, two pages. <laughs> <laughs> just underwhelming. He had one page of work. He's this famous and he had one he just, page. He, it was actually an art piece where he just didn't record any of the things that he yeah. did. He burned everything. He only did two shows. No, he had 77 pages beyond so then my comment was (laughs) you're not supposed to record everything though everybody else has selected shows group shows selected solo shows it's like the ones that are the most important i think it's probably at this point not felix making those decisions obviously like is the state making those decisions like here's literally everything he had done yeah okay so here is i'm going to talk about his work but in the beginning there's just going to be some responses to the only interview i found with him so you'll get his explanation and his vibe before i dive into the listing and talking about his work does that sound good that sounds great okay i'm here for it i'm making her be here for it his vibe is just intimidating (laughs) so felix felix was known for his quiet minimal installations and sculptures using materials such as strings of light bulbs clocks that you can't take you can't take those (laughs) you can take the stacks of paper do not package hard candies not the clocks (laughs) his work is sometimes considered a reflection of his experience with aids and as an openly gay man he felt it was quote much more powerful to assume that the gay and straight audience was the same audience that being a cuban born american is the same as being an american and being american was something he was extremely proud of in an interview with tim collins in 1993 he said the feminism and the work of philosophers roland barthes walter benjamin walter benjamin walter benjamin if you really want to be nitpicky and Michel Foucault and others were critical to his development. I've had to read. I feel all like three I've read so many things by all three of them. Yeah. Is that what you just said? I said I've read all lots by all three. Me too. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's just an art school thing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's basically forced upon you. Felix said, without those philosophers, I wouldn't have been able to make certain pieces, to arrive at certain positions. Some of their writings and ideas gave me a certain freedom to see. These ideas moved me to a place of pleasure through knowledge and some understanding of the way reality is constructed, of the way the self is formed in culture, of the way language sets traps, and of the cracks in the master narrative. Those cracks where power can be exercised. I definitely just reading that or hearing that makes me think of a specific feeling in my chest of going to college and 
being so excited about deep understanding of ideas, you know, like everybody who goes to college, you know, I would like buy a Nietzsche book and be like so excited about like thinking deeply about philosophy and applying those things in my life. Just him saying that just brings me back to that feeling of, I don't know, being able to go into that kind of stuff in your brain. Yeah. I mean, it's like the one moment you can start changing your perception of the world and your understanding and being able to communicate those thoughts through your work and through language. And it's like the first time that you kind of get more away from your, who someone else is telling you that you are or wants you to be. It's kind of just feels powerful to just start having knowledge and start thinking about those things and like making decisions rather than just, I am this or because someone told me I am. So Tim said, you don't have the trappings of a studio, assistants, visitors, and all that. Issues of space and light are gone since your work is so sensitive to place and context. How do you determine the pieces? You say you don't do drawings, but I know you must do drawings. You must have some idea of what the piece is going to look like. So how do you begin? And he said, it's like, fuck off. I don't do drawings. Yeah. Don't tell me I must like, do anything. I know you do drawings. <laughs> He's like, wink, 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 wink. I know for sure. Uh, he said, Felix, I really don't plan pieces using drawings. First of all, I usually dislike drawings by sculptors. They're just so academic and expected. I don't follow that prescribed mode. I do make drawings and photographs, but they have their own specific function. They are not sketches of the sculptures. They are drawings that represent a parallel set of ideas. The reason why I don't have a studio, I think that I'm very neurotic. Actually, I guess I am neurotic. So having a studio would paralyze me completely. Just the idea that I would have a place where I had to go to work and make something scares the shit out of me. The studio is a scary stage set. When you don't have a studio, you take risks. You change your underwear in public. (laughs) Wait, wait a second. (laughs) Who does that? We wouldn't know. We have a studio. studio. Definitely. (laughs) Also, you and everybody else feels this way about a studio, Felix. I'm not afraid of making mistakes. I'm afraid of keeping them. I have destroyed a lot of pieces. I like the the excitement of fucking up royally. Some artists can rehearse in their studios before they go into a gallery. I find that too easy. I don't know. I've never had anything to lose, so I've always done it my own way. And then he's talking about installing. He says, I usually do it in just one day. Some shows just take two hours to install. That's it. I'm out of there. I think about the work and the installations for a very, very long time. I lose sleep over these things. But when I get there, I just dump a pile of candy on the floor. So <laughs> that's how long it takes. <laughs> no big deal. From 1987 to 1991, Felix was an active member of Group Material, which was a New York-based collective founded in 1980 by artist uh, Julie Alt, Doug Ashford, and Tim Rollins. Cool. Don't know any of those people. <laughs> I was going to look them up to see if I recognize their work because I'm one of those annoying people that's like, no, the name doesn't sound familiar. But then I look at their work and I'm like, oh, I totally know who they are. Mm-hmm. That's me with everything. I and I'm not saying that like, no, but I'd probably know it if I saw their work. <laughs> I do that a lot, actually. <laughs> no, but I heard about them this one no, time. No, but 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm embarrassed to say their names don't sound familiar to me, though. So, group material used the exhibition as their medium, calling attention to social issues like homelessness, U.S. intervention in Latin America, gender inequality, and sexuality. Most of all, group material shared his belief that aesthetics and politics are inseparable. Refusing to be labeled political artists, they insisted on the importance of the aesthetic experience and personal history. Incorporating these influences... Gonzalez Torres took up the legacies of minimalism and feminism. Two fantastic movements. <laughs> Except for that minimalism one's kind of boring. Felix's rise to prominence in the late 80s was swift. Following Taylor Swift. Tay Tay. Following his third solo gallery show in New York in 1988, the artist was invited to do a solo project at the New Museum. That's when we were born. Yeah, it was when we were born. So he, he graduated mm-hmm. his BFA, right, in 83. Mm-hmm. His MFA in 87. So a year after he got his MFA, he did we a need to solo stop doing this project at the new museum. These people are the most famous artists that we're doing. Like, we cannot do this to ourselves anymore. <laughs> Keep comp- beat ourselves up every I time. I am not Mark. I am not they, Felix. I am not Eva. Swift. <laughs> <laughs> that they have Taylor Swift rises to fame and fortune. Maybe not fortune, but at least fame. I'm going to find failed artists that now just make local ceramic plates Picasso. with like leaf impressions <laughs> on them in their backyard and like butterflies. Just go to Pinterest. You'll find tons of them. <laughs> That's who the next episode is going to be. Like. The next episode is just on Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> Moving along. In 1989, the next year, Berkeley Art Museum and the Pacific Film Archive asked group material to participate in an exhibition at the Matrix Gallery in Berkeley focused on the AIDS epidemic. If you go to BAMFA's website, uh, their archive, and look up group material Matrix, you can read the, the text pamphlet stuff. But here's a quote about it. The AIDS Timeline, a mixed-media installation by the artist collective group Material, reconstructs the history of AIDS as embedded within a web of cultural and political relations, primarily among them the federal government's response to the syndrome. According to group Material, the timeline indicates the government's inaction on AIDS and society's complicity in that inaction. So, here's the first like individual work of art that I'm starting with. Okay. Untitled 1989. It's a billboard, all black with white te- two lines of white text at the bottom of the billboard. Serif font. Felix erected a billboard in Sheridan Square, New York City, commemorating the 20th anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion, the uprising by members of the LGBTQ community against police oppression which was considered a seminal moment in the gay rights movement. Was it just about the Stonewall Rebellion? But there's these other things. Maybe you should read. I'm going to read. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the artist described the work as a visual reference, an architectural sign of being, a monument for the community that has been historically invisible. In his 89 artist statement about the work, Felix wrote, The letters running across the lower part of the billboard suggest a long caption, capable of sustaining the projection of many images. 
The size of the letters is rather small for such a large space. This is not an ad. I don't expect it to be readable while speeding down 7th Avenue to the Holland Tunnel. I hope the public will stop for an instant to reflect on the real and abstract relationships of the different dates. The Stonewall Uprising took place in June of 69 at the Stonewall Inn on Christopher Street. Following a police raid on the bar, six days of demonstrations and civil uprisings ensued around the bar, sparking similar movements in cities across the country and triggering further activism in response to human rights injustices and the lack of government action surrounding the AIDS epidemic. This historic incident ignited the modern LGBTQ movement and is a salient reminder of the human and civil rights injustices in the United States and around the world against which the LGBTQ community continues to struggle. In 2016, President Obama named the Stonewall Inn a national historic landmark. Good job, Obama. We miss you. So the the two lines on the bottom say, here, do you want to read it? Here you get. Yes, I'd love to read it. Okay, go. People with AIDS Coalition, 1985. Police harassment, 1969. Oscar Wilde, 1895. Supreme Court, 1986. Harvey Milk, 1977. March on Washington, 1987. Stonewall Rebellion, 1969. It's interesting that he wanted them in that order. Mm -hmm. My brain immediately goes to it should be in order. Chronological order? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next one's called Untitled Lover Boy, like separate name in parentheses, parentheses Lover Boy in 1989. This is very pretty. It's so pretty, so minimal. So it's a white room with a concrete floor, and on the left side of the wall, it there's floor to ceiling windows. It's two different installation views. So Wherever it's installed, it's installed against a room with windows, and it's these really sheer blue curtains. Like baby blue. Yeah. And in the first photo, they're like flowing in the wind. It's so pretty. Yeah. They're like kind of like a draft is pushing them in gently. Mm -hmm. He made this work also in 1989, and it consists of two sets of gauzy light blue curtains hanging in front of open or closed windows. Here, the window panes grids immediately recalls similar forms in early 20th century paintings like those of Mondrian and masterworks of minimalism by artists including Donald Judd and Solowit. And yet, the delicate curtains are closer in tone to the post-minimalist works of Eva Hesse, whose contingent series had a strong impact on the young Gonzalez Torres. As the curtains quiver in the wind, the sheer curtains serve as reminders of human habitation in a space that is otherwise left empty. The fabric records the slightest outside breeze or movement within the gallery, becoming a fragile visual representation of unseen absent forces. Hmm. The open windows further suggest a sudden or unplanned exit, foreshadowing the loss of the artist's longtime partner, Ross laycock who's living with aids no in a less serious way it reminds me of peter pan and wendy i never watched peter pan growing up but i watched hook so after this he taught at new york university and briefly at the california institute of the arts in valencia in 1990 so the next i'm going over is untitled 
parentheses, Death by Gun in 1990. It's a stack of posters. I actually have this one. You do? Yes, I do. Do you buy it from someone who took it? No, I got it in person. Oh, I thought it was 1990. Yeah, but there's been like re-showing. Sorry, I didn't know. It just said 1990 on it. My fucking bad. (laughs) I got it. No, I took it myself when I was three. (laughs) My mom brought me to the museum. I told you I've seen all his works in person. What if at three my favorite work was Felix Gonzalez Torres? Then you would, right now, you would be Claire. (laughs) Uh, But I wasn't. And I'm not. Well, (laughs) can't win them all. (laughs) This is a very cool poster, by the way. Yeah. So from afar, it's supposed to print a stack of them and just a bunch of small headshots in a grid. From afar, it looks like some sort of code language or something. Yeah, it does. But it's not. Here's an up-close picture. The stack of posters... Untitled Death by Gun reproduces a composite image of 460 individuals killed by gunshots in a single week in the United States. Whoa. Each copy includes the name, age, and circumstances surrounding the individual's death. Gonzalez Torres encouraged museum goers to take one of the photolithographs from the stack, allowing for exhibitors to renew the stack as it was depleted. Again, the artist played with the conventions of the boxy, minimalist sculptures of Donald Judd and Carl Andre, reworking their solid forms as a constantly changing cube. Felix, along with other artists associated with uh, relational aesthetics and the pictures generation, furthered the concept of participation as a political act. Instead of simply walking across a sculpture, as with Andre's floor sculptures, the audience takes a piece of it home with them. Untitled Death by Gun also relates to the political legacy of printmaking as a cheap and easy way to distribute information, raise awareness, and galvanize the public. So I'm going to read a couple of these to you. Okay. John Hebert, 19. Outside a bar, he argued about a pool game with two other young men. One of them got a pistol from a van and shot him in the side. Russell Bauer, 73. He had been suffering from prostate cancer, taking numerous medications, as well as hospice treatment. He killed Mm -hmm. himself at home with a pistol. Thomas Kegler, 39, after he allegedly stole $20 worth of crack, two suspected crack dealers, 17 and 18, beat him and shot him in the head. Police arrested the pair. Patricia Arante, 32, while reclining in... In their apartment beside her sleeping husband, who enjoyed collecting guns, she shot herself with one of his semi-automatic pistols. Mm -hmm. Next work, Untitled Portrait of Ross in L.A., 1990. Mm -hmm. So this is one of his infamous corner candy pieces. He installs a pile of candy, like wrapped hard candy, in a corner. So it kind of looks like a, a fourth of a pyramid. They're all hand-wrapped candies, and these, this collection is of these bright, shiny, really pretty silver, blue, and red ones. It's like 4th of July in a corner. Yeah. But that one picture of the hand, like, they're so, so pretty. rich and shiny. Oh, it's uh-huh. so pretty. This is one of Felix's most recognizable works, consisting of an endlessly renewable pile of individually wrapped candies with an ideal total weight of 175 pounds. 
a number that corresponds to his partner Ross's healthy weight before he contracted HIV. Known colloquially as a candy spill, the artist produced a number of similar works in different sizes, colors, and shapes. They diminish as visitors take candy from the pile and are then replenished in a cycle reminiscent of life and death. Many of the spills were considered portraits, their forms suggested by some aspect of a person, weight, color, or to other personal associations the artist made. Gonzalez Torres once remarked that the most successful of all the political moves are ones that don't appear to be political. I don't know why I'm enunciating things so intensely. <laughs> political. Political. Although many visitors to a candy spill experience it as an illicit, pleasurable moment in the highly regulated environment of a museum gallery, the artist may have also intended a darker meaning. As the viewer unwraps and eats the candy, that's me, that's he or Two she becomes complicit in the disappearing process, akin to the years-long public health crisis of HIV-AIDS, during which many stigmatized the disease as gay cancer, leading to the failure of adequately support research or treatments, and ultimately to thousands of early deaths. It's so perfect and simple and beautiful and like connects in a bunch of different ways, but not in an overly. Yeah, it's not like trying to shove way. it. I was going to say shove it down your throat, but it's literally going down literally. your throat. But it's <laughs> you not... didn't shove it though. You picked it up and put it down your throat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, I think softness and quietness can be more powerful than being loud and preachy. I also think it's not even trying to be like highfalutin or like a lot of times it's like all these layers of stuff and it's like if you get it and then but then you have to like think more about it and it's just like simple the weight is the same as his lover yeah the fact that you take the candies complicitly like the whole thing it's just this merging of pleasure and pain is Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty perfect did he say anything about the color of this first one or no, the red, white, it just, and it's just candies individually silver. wrapped in multicolored cellophane. I just mean, does he say, because you're saying that the color is like specific. Other ones, I think he talks about specific colors. This one wasn't mentioned why. If someone finds out why, they can reach out to us yeah. and do more research than I did. <laughs> you try covering 77 pages. I was just going to say it's so much already. <laughs> like it's hard. Even the simplest of things where it's like, this is going to be easy. They weren't, they're not, like, they're still alive and they're young. Never easy. So much. Now we're just getting mad at our audience. (laughs) You know what, Brad? Get the fuck out of here with your neediness. He's like, like, I'm just excited. (laughs) (laughs) Untitled Perfect Lovers, 1991. That's so pretty. So it's two clocks. Oh, those clocks don't make me happy. Really? I love the top ones. They're so... No, like, oh, they remind me of school. Yeah, there's something like nice school. and just like Ugh. vintage-y about them. So there's two identical battery-operated clocks installed side by side with their edge, uh, inside edges like just touching or like just close to touching. As ordinary objects elevated to the level of fine art, the clocks undoubtedly reference the Duchampian ready-made and minimalist sculpture. 
Like all of Gonzalez Torres's works, mundane materials are springboards for personal and political meanings that vary with their context. The viewer's response to the clocks shift dramatically, knowing that the artist created the installation while his partner Ross Laycock was dying from AIDS. Gonzalez Torres acknowledged that the clocks would fall out of sync, one eventually stopping first. He said, Time is something that scares me, or used to. This piece I made with the two clocks was the scariest thing I've ever done. I wanted to face it. I wanted those two clocks right in front of me, ticking. That was terrible. <sighs> Later, in 91, Felix Gonzalez Torres's partner of 80... <laughs> wow. <laughs> you just made the saddest part of this whole thing super funny i'm sorry no one has been together 80 years felix gonzalez torres's partner of eight years ross laycock passed away from complications relating to the aids virus one of gonzalez torres's most significant inspiration was his long-term relationship with ross he was a Canadian who moved to New York in 1980, though he later returned to Toronto to study biochemistry and English before eventually becoming a sommelier and AIDS activist. The two met in 1983 and were intertwined like a helix. Following a lengthy illness, Ross died of AIDS-related complications on January 24th, 1991. His life and his loss had a profound effect on Felix, who wrote that his art was, first and foremost, about Ross. That's not fair. In this 1988 piece, Felix's letter to Ross Laycock. Hello, my name is Andres Payan Estrada, and I am going to read to you a letter from Felix Gonzalez Torres to his lover, Ross Laycock. This letter was written in 1988, which was the same year that Ross contracted HIV. He later passed away in 1991 due to AIDS-related illness. And the letter is the following. Lovers, 1988. Don't be afraid of the clocks. They are our time. Time has been so generous to us. We imprinted time with the sweet taste of victory. We conquer fate by meeting at a certain time, in a certain space. We are a product of the time. Therefore, we give back credit where it is due. Time. We are synchronized now and forever. I love you. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. So there's this like ink drawing of the two clocks at the middle left of the paper and with a typewriter it says lovers comma 1988 in 1991 there's another series of billboards that are just called untitled billboards and they're in different places but they're all photographs of a disheveled bed like when you get out of bed and the sheets are still kind of pulled back and the impression of your head is still in the pillow and it's white pillows on white sheets with white uh fitted sheet and it's just two so it's like one person's head imprint on one and then next to it the other person's head imprint there Mm -hmm. between february 20th and march 18th of 1991 
24 billboards throughout Manhattan showcase the monochrome image of a unmade double bed with a rumpled sheets and depression of a head in the center of each of the two pillows. No explanation accompanied the image. In the early 90s, the HIV AIDS crisis was at a fever pitch, and the bed, untitled, served as an allegorical representation of the crisis. The depressions in the pillow and the rumpled sheets announced both the presence and absence of bodies. On a more personal note, the untitled was an homage to Gonzalez Torres' partner, Ross, who died of AIDS complications in 91, the same year the installation went up. The number 24 commemorates the date that Ross died. The bed in Untitled is a site of conflict, a poignant reminder of both the companionship that once existed there and the loneliness after its loss. For Felix, art was, quote, one enormous collaboration with the public. The stark image featured on the billboards of Untitled leaves a lot of room for collaboration, for the viewer to project onto the piece all that a bed can represent. In bringing an image of the private space of the bed into the public realm of the cityscape, Felix brought his private mourning into the public sphere. He was inviting his viewer to participate in an experience of mourning and to connect to the universal experience of having loved and having lost someone. I think something that I love about his work so much is just the, how emotional and how powerful his what he's trying to communicate is and then how gentle and quiet the actual work is. Like it gives mm-hmm. the viewer that space to absorb it. The emotion in it is so powerful, like you're saying, and that is actually really rare now that I'm thinking of it. I feel like I wouldn't say that if, like, if you asked me that question, like, is there emotion in most people's artwork? It'd be like, yeah, it does. There's tons of emotion, but not like this. This Mm -hmm. feels so raw and so, it is quiet, but it's also really obvious and in your face in a way. It's not in your face at all, but... It's upfront, I guess. Like the first thing is the emotion. And in thinking about minimalism too, it's like a weird crossing of those things where like the work kind of looks minimalist, but it's like the opposite of minimalism in every sense of the meaning behind the work. Something that's so important is in a time where people are basically fearing queer and gay culture and, you know, talking about being gay cancer, his work humanizes this experience and talking to Mm -hmm. something universal like at its at any core a relationship is just about loving each other Mm -hmm. it's pretty special okay the next one is puzzles 1991 uh the puzzle series features a unique combination of fluidity and specificity perpetually stuck in the elusive border between private and public the artist made his jigsaw pieces out of a variety of images such as newspaper clippings, photos, bits of love letters, and handwritten notes, disguised in the form of table games. The fragmented pictures whisper about the fragility of memory and the poetry of the everyday. They materially translate the mental process involved in memory, its extreme fragility, and the steady, albeit slow, threat of oblivion. The artist reacts to this fatality by protecting each work in a transparent plastic bag as if to slow the fading of memories in an attempt to limit the easy dispersion of the singular parts. 
Protecting the, each work in a plastic bag? Yeah, so all these puzzles are, they... are in a... Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Next one is untitled. He really likes not titling things, but also yeah. titling them. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't like untitled, because I'm just like, the title is just what you titled it after you said untitled. I don't get yeah. it. <laughs> and then it became such a trend. Like, remember at Otis, everyone would be like, untitled. Everything was untitled. Yes. Stupid. I love titles. Untitled, parentheses, Orpheus, comma, twice. 1991. So it's a room white space concrete floors with two vertical mirrors placed just a couple inches apart from each other <laughs> this work is comprised of two standing panes installed flush with the you've wall. done that like four times so, far. <laughs> <laughs> so something i missed was it's installed flush with the wall so it's like kind of carved into the wall oh interesting yeah. okay in the greek myth orpheus was permitted to bring his beloved back from Hades if he did not turn around to face her on the return journey. You love Greek myths. Do you know more about this? He couldn't do it. Each scaled to reflect a standing human form, an explicit reference to the glass membrane of the underworld in Cocteau's Orphée. Jean Cocteau Orphée. 1950. The vision of the afterlife these mirrors afford is altogether earthly. You see yourself present in the exhibition space, but only in one mirror at a time. The other mirror is empty, and thus the picture they present is incomplete. Instead of choosing to die in order to be with his love, he mocked the deities in an attempt to visit Hades to get her back alive. Um, his love was not true, meaning that he was not willing to die for it. He was punished by the deities first by giving him one of the, <laughs> him the only apparition of his former wife in the underworld, and then by having him killed by women. Oh, so he died. He was killed by women. Hmm. For mocking the gods. Oh, and they sh so they didn't really do it. They gave him like illusion. a ghost version yeah. of his wife. Yeah. <clears throat> all around fucked up but i guess gods can do whatever they want so and i feel like you like this one for some reason i what untitled go go dancing platform 1991 you feel like i would like this one yeah. or not like this one watch the youtube video I linked. wait which one that i would like it or not like it like it oh that i would like it okay yes <laughs> <laughs> I would so do that job. Ooh, those are some moves. I like that. Sh I like those shoes. Ooh, ooh, it's getting sexier. Oh, that's a package. <laughs> the Walkman. I I cannot handle the art people just walking around like nothing's happening. <laughs> Stop walking around like nothing's happening. Look at him. The sound of it is good too. Yeah. Okay, I'll skip forward a little bit. Oh, those three ladies in the corner are just sitting and watching. They're like, <laughs> like we're just going to the museum again today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Look, we're going again again today. We got season passes. <laughs> that was really good. I'm so happy I watched that. Untitled go-go dancing platform is just that. <laughs> it's a box painted white, although there was a light blue version as well, with bare incandescent bulbs lining that the you can't take that you can't take lining the top perimeter 
And most of the time, it's an unused stage just, just installed there, activated only by the presence of an actual go-go dancer. Felix did not specify the gender of the go-go dancer, but he did insist that he or she wear silver lame bottoms. So, hot pants. Hot pants. Hot pants. <laughs> like many of the artist's hard-edged modular works, it recalls minimalist sculpture. A barely clad go-go dancer in the middle of a museum can only be described as somewhat out of the ordinary. So only somewhat. A dreamlike or absurd situation that represents a postmodern continuation of surrealist strategies, as well as a kind of quote-unquote happening in the spirit of the impromptu events first realized by the avant-garde artists such as Alan Capro in the 1960s. Lastly, untitled Go-Go Dancing Platform introduces a blatantly homoerotic moment to the space of the museum, where scenes of heterosexual desire are typically dominant. For centuries, gay artists and gay subjects were suppressed, marginalized, or whitewashed, and Gonzalez Torres was determined to reverse this process. So, to describe it, I mean, we'll obviously post a video, but the video we'll be posting and the photos, all three are men, and there's like no clothes except for their silver hot pants and then tennis shoes. And then they're wearing headphones and holding like a Walkman. For those of you that are too young and don't know what a Walkman is. It's basically, it's basically an iPod. They're like, what's an iPod? I was just going to say, <laughs> do they know what an iPod is? So there's these guys and they're listening to music. So you can't hear what they're dancing to. All you hear is the squeaking of their tennis shoes on the platform. And they're like, bah, every time they jump or something. Yeah. <laughs> and these three old ladies are enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. So, can, like, can you imagine being a professional go-go dancer and being hired by a museum to go and dance? I'd be so excited. Oh, my God. <laughs> It'd be so much fun. Because the whole, well, I don't know if it would be fun. Because what they do is, like, my whole thing, the reason I would think is fun is because I would love the idea of making people uncomfortable. Yeah. feels like you're in a secret. People are so uncomfortable. Americans are particularly uncomfortable when it comes to any kind of like... Body thing or... Yeah, like... <laughs> if it doesn't fall into... Any remote idea of like sexuality, they're like, oh, don't look away. Walk away. <laughs> it's our Puritan start. <laughs> Untitled Petite Palais. Palais. 1992. I just know in French, a lot of letters are just dropped. don't exist yeah <laughs> pretend like all those letters aren't there that's that's just silly he wanted it to be called untitled i'm calling it untitled there you go <laughs> yeah so the two intertwining strands of bulbs that comprise untitled cascade from the ceiling forming a pool of light on the ground the artist created 24 different light strings and though they are similar, they have different titles, number of bulbs, and number of strings. So this first one is the untitled Petite Palais, and it's the, it's like a, you know, a string of really those like thick light bulbs mm -hmm. in like white outside, slash yellow. Like the outside, like the ones I have that would go like on your porch or Yeah, something. like the hipster lights. Yeah. Um, so they're intertwined. They, they fall from the ceiling down to the ground and like cluster on the ground. But then I'm also going to go over some of his other light sculptures in this section too. 
When asked how the piece should be displayed, Gonzalez Torres responded, I don't necessarily know how these pieces are best displayed. I don't have all the answers. You, the owner slash curator, decide how you want it done. Whatever you want to do, try it. This is not some minimalist artwork that has to be exactly two inches to the left and six inches down. Play with it, please. Have fun. Give yourself that freedom. Put my creativity into question. This desire for an infinite number of open-ended possibilities relates to the artist's belief in leaving the final meaning of his work to the audience and the local yes. institution that presents it. Yes. So you. That's my mantra. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's some photos of the other works. So like a bunch of lights in like a grid going down and How much clustering. do you think? at the institutions copied the people like the only people who really created anything new were the first ones no i'm sure there's some that were courageous and some that were just like no i like it like this this one's uh called untitled america number one and it's like a grid of the lights down from the ceiling and clustering and a grid of bulb clusters on the ground and then this is like an outside wall and like a ton of lights side by side it's like 30 strands of bulbs right next to each other across the wall so it, so ends like, up, it looks like a paragraph or something where it's just like line line like how you would just draw a pretend paragraph without any words in it like yeah and line, the lines line. are made of the light bulbs yeah and all the light bulbs are on by the way yeah uh and then again this is like a bunch of strings hanging from the ceiling but creating one big light cluster at the bottom in front of a stairway and this one they're hanging from the ceiling but they're like instead of clustered they're drawn out across the floor this one's called untitled for stockholm 1992 untitled for stockholm 1992 was produced in new york and shipped to stockholm it's the biggest light string piece he ever made 12 long strands made specifically to fill their upstairs exhibition space when they installed it, he realized it was too much. They ended up showing only about half of the strands. In fact, they'd never shown all 12 strands in Stockholm. Felix, Oh, I want them to. <laughs> sounds so bright and crazy. Felix was very clear about the anti-aesthetics of the installation. It's tempting to install all 12 light strings for maximum striking effect like you just wanted. Yes. But he wasn't interested in that kind of exaggerated beauty. The installation was a simple process. While Felix was positioning the work, he pulled the light strings, light bulbs, and all around the ground, along the ground. They made a kind of sweeping motion on the floor, which created a very special sound. I hadn't realized that a light bulb is actually quite sturdy. It's just when you drop it or bang it that it breaks. That doesn't seem sturdy. <laughs> <laughs> what is sturdy about it? You could drag anything. <laughs> in 1992, when he's 35 years old, he was granted a dad fellowship, a DAAD fellowship, to work in Berlin, the German Academic Exchange Program, and in 93, a fellowship from the National Endowments for the Arts for the second time. The first one was 1989. Wait, what does DAD stand for? It stands for German Academic Exchange Service. But I think in German. Oh, in I German. See. 
Deutscher Akademischer Ausstellungsdienst. Okay. It just ends there and then goes German Academic Exchange Service. Okay. All right. So is this like his thing to do things twice and like super successfully? Yeah, that's his thing. Yeah. Which, just to mention, the National Endowments for the Arts needs to keep being funded. So I wrote here, the budget outline submitted by Trump on March 16th, 2017 to Congress would eliminate all funding for the program. Congress approved a budget that retained NEA funding. The White House budget proposed for fiscal year 2018 again called for elimination of funding, but Congress retained the funding for another year. So like, he keeps trying to eliminate everything that matters. We don't like national forests. Why are we protecting the earth? Why are we protecting the arts? Why are we funding schools? Why are we keeping women rights i just don't understand why women would get rights it makes no sense to me oh i saw something here it was tweeted by jishnu bando as you binge watch your 13th entire series or read a book or sleep to music remember remember that in the darkest days when everything stopped you turned to artists yes it's true yep Mm-hmm. Curtains, 1991 to 1995. In 91, Felix produced the first of a series of five beaded curtains, which often reference the organic and inorganic substances associated with battling AIDS. They hang from the ceiling, acting as a membrane and a site of passage that beckons viewers to walk through it. The strands caress their bodies as the curtain parts. The colorful beads are at once celebratory and evocative of organic substances. In all of his works, we find an unlikely humanness embedded in the most everyday objects, but the curtain works provide a particularly poignant example of his humanizing touch. Felix's curtains present a hospitality unparalleled among contemporary artwork. While all visitors can enjoy the fun of interacting with the strings of beads, others are aware of the multiple other associations with passing through the curtain. They are subtle, but never shy about it. Passing through the gorgeous sheet of green, silver, clear in Untitled Beginning, 1994, the viewer is invited to imagine an awakening, a renewal, a rebirth. Such are the hopes embedded in the gorgeous green curtain. As an imagined veil between life and death, the beaded curtains enact a formidable interchange of play and ritual. In this way, Felix animates an empty and cliched form with new possibilities and at the same time profound conundrums. Rather than merely contemplating loss with the mournful dance of Untitled Lover Boy 1989, which are the blue curtains, the uh, material ones, the beaded curtains help us enter the morning more fully. So here's Untitled Beginning 1994, installed in different ways. So think like early teens doorway beads that are like mm-hmm. a hula girl. That's exactly what I was thinking. Um, Heidi had glow-in-the-dark alien yeah. ones. Um, Aliens are big in the 90s. And he did different ones. They're all these like vertical 
stripes except for the gold one so there's vertical stripes and there's a green i've never been that far away from beads in a doorway to see that you can see through them yeah it's so pretty the blue one's called untitled water 1995 the white one's untitled chemo 1991 the red one is untitled blood 1992 the gold ones are untitled golden 1995 the gold ones are, they like shimmer in a different way than the other ones. I kind of like the white ones, actually. Yeah. The the wide white one is amazing. Yeah. yeah. So Felix Gonzalez Torres died in Miami of AIDS-related illness complications in 1996. Uh, he was 38 years old. In 2007... Gonzalez Torres was selected as the United States official representative at the Venice Biennial, curated by Nancy Spector. The artist's previously controversial status influenced the 1995 decision to reject him for the Venice Pavilion in favor of Bill Viola. God damn it, Bill. <laughs> Just kidding, it's not your fault. <laughs> His posthumous show, the only other posthumous representative from the united states was robert smithson in 1982 at the u.s pavilion featured among others untitled 1992 to 1995 a never before realized sculpture in the courtyard of the pavilion two adjoining circular reflecting pools the sides of which touch just enough at a single point to share an almost undetectable flow of water Untitled and open-ended in terms of their possible materials, the pools presented here were carved from white Carrera marble. Inside, there's Untitled America, which is a bulb, the light, light bulb sculpture. Then there's Untitled Public Opinion, which is made of licorice pieces, which is probably Ew. his worst sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> Disgusting. No one's picking up that. Nasty, um, especially not off the floor like that. No. And then there's some stacks, his like poster stacks of paper pieces. Mr. Gonzalez Torres made the short list for the 1995 biennial a year before his death, and he spoke of wanting the work in the exhibition to be tough. The work that this curator chose includes many of his greatest hits, a candy spill, cube-like stacks of paper, cascading strings of 15-watt frosted light bulbs that can be arranged however the curator sees fit, but many of the pieces here are also tough, among his most critical. One stack of paper, with blank pieces edged in black like funeral announcements, is called Untitled Republican Years, from 1992. Two other stacks from 89 bear the typed words Memorial Day Weekend and Veterans Day Sale. Mr. Gonzalez Torres, who thought of such stacks as anti-monuments, said he came up with the idea of the, for the two phrases after reading the paper and thinking that in our culture, we no longer celebrate historical events at the public plaza. We go shopping. Yep. <laughs> while, some so of his, while some of his signature spills and piles are composed of silver-wrapped chocolates or brightly colored candy. The carpet-like one that covers the floor in one wing of the American Pavilion, called Untitled Public Opinion, is made with grayish licorice pieces vaguely shaped like missiles. And the public opinion on licorice is that nobody likes it. <laughs> if it's not red. And I'm sorry, 
But Twizzlers? No. 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 Red Vines. All the way. We're a Red Vines family. Make if you watch Parks into a and straw Rec, and drink you would seven understand up. that. <laughs> I already understand it just from the taste of Twizzlers versus Red Vines. <laughs> okay, so uh, here's a piece. Ooh, I love that blue. Um, so Gonzalez Torres' 1992 piece, Untitled Portrait of Marcel Bryant. Bryant? Bryant, yeah. I don't know. If it is French, it will be said something like brillant, but I I don't actually speak French. I just took French in college, and I was told m- that my pronunciation was wonky. Sold for $4.6 million at <laughs> Philips de Puri & Company in 2010. I just picture like... A dump truck full of candy arriving <laughs> at this person's house. And then a gallery person's like, so someone sold me to you? And now I'm here and I have to stay here every day. And if people take candy, I have to replenish it at the end of every day. <laughs> oh, I work man. for you now for the yeah. rest of your life. It's just displayed in their living room in the corner. And there's just a man standing there. Visitor. When guests come over. They take it. And he's like, oh. He's like, visitor. Walks out of the room. <laughs> and then every Takes time the owner candy, <laughs> puts it back, the owner goes up to him. He's like, Bill, haven't we talked about this? They're allowed to touch the candy. That's the whole point that you're here. <laughs> Bill's like, before he goes to bed, he has to count every piece of candy <laughs> and oh get it God. back. Oh he goes to the bathroom for one minute. He's like, oh no, did oh someone no. take a candy or not? <laughs> um, Imagine paying four point six million for oil candy. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> so this can I love the color. It's just this like it's muted so but saturated blue. Mm. It's so pretty. It's so nice. And um, just like with the shadows, I think yeah. is part of what makes it so pretty. The shadows of the fact that it's all little pieces of things. Yeah. It's gorgeous. And it's really nice. Yeah. So between 2010 and 2011, a traveling retrospective, uh, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Specific Objects Without Specific Form. At each of the stages of the exhibition tour, the show was initially installed by the exhibition's curator, Elena Filipovic. Halfway through its duration is completely reinstalled by a different selected artist, whose own practice has been influenced by Gonzalez Torres. Ooh. Artists Carol Bove, Dan Vo, and Tino Segal were chosen to curate the show's second half. That's cool. Yeah. It's very cool. In November... Imagine t- how special they feel. Right? I feel like their practice to be is that super, influenced? super influenced. Yeah. yeah. In November 2015, at a record sale for the artist... Felix's Untitled LA, 1991, a 50-pound installation of green hard candies sold for $7.7 million at Christie's in New York. <laughs> Just picture another dump truck full of candy. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 2019, for the entire month of June, the Public Art Fund presented Felix's first billboard, which was unveiled in 1989 in the West Village in New York. 
The work was situated in its original location on the corner of 7th Avenue and Christopher Street above Village Cigars and steps away from the Stonewall Inn. Oh, I love it. That's so good. So I got all of my information from the art story, art space, hyperallergic, hyperallergenic, (laughs) (laughs) public art fund, New York Times, academia.edu, and probably a few others that I forgot to list, but thank you to all those sites, and I'm sorry if I missed a lot of information. You did a great job. Thank you. It was lovely, and also really depressing and sad. Could have used a happier one at this point in time, but, you know, I know you didn't plan this to coincide with what's going on, but... I I really didn't. I had this planned for... I'm not trying to blame you here through you under the bus. She, But you will. <laughs> it's It's been ready for a, a few months now. Well, he was amazing, and I wish I had seen any one of these in real life. Well, it'll be even more special when you see it next time. Yes. What's your favorite if you had to pick a favorite? I really do like his... I think my favorite piece is the the love letter. Yeah. That'll make me cry just thinking of it. I'd much rather be able to pick up a print than candy. That's true. I like the... I mean, I have a print because... <laughs> Wait, you have one of these? I ha- if you don't know... I actually have seen his work in person. How many times have you seen it? Like Did you see million. one of the beats? No, I haven't seen one of the beats. Oh, well, I guess you're not that cool. Did but you see I, a go-go dancer in hot pants? Because okay. that's all I really care about. That's my favorite. <laughs> Obviously. You can buy the hot dancer. <laughs> oh! At Christie's. He'll come. And for one hour a week, he will dance in your house for you but randomly yes he'll only come in at random times so no. i don't know when it's gonna happen no. will i be sleeping will i be cooking breakfast will i be trying to <laughs> you take up. my son poop <laughs> <laughs> he just starts going oh i just leave Romy on the toilet by himself hold on hold on hold on <laughs> should we stop recording should we say bye yes yeah <laughs> goodbye bye. bye we'll be back soon we'll be back I hope all of you stay safe and stay entertained. Learn a new language. I'm learning Japanese on Duolingo. Uh-huh. Read a book. Puzzles are awesome. Do a puzzle. Do puzzles. It's so, it seems so stupid, but it's really fun. Go watch the movie Dark Water. It's really Dude, good. Dude, that movie is so good. Yeah. And Also, Mark Ruffalo. You can't be mad, even if he's like a chubby dad. No. So cute. I he's... love him. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.